At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. My name is Richard Graham, a retired colonel. Flew the SR-71 for eight years. book I wrote on flying the SR-71 is available. I think you'll enjoy it. It takes you through a complete mission from start to finish. I enjoyed talking with Steve Cates. I look forward to the next time we can talk more about the SR-71 Blackbird. You're listening to the Dr. Sky Show right now. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much. The Dr. Sky Show, with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, as we continue here, not only on the Internet, but also on major radio stations around the nation and around the world. I'd like to first thank our producer extraordinaire, Dr. D, the audio physician at radio station KZSB, that's out of Santa Barbara, California. And to the rest of you listening listening to us, that is, on Coast to Coast AM, and so many other outlets, and KTAR in Phoenix, the home of the Dr. Sky Show, we thank you so much. A veteran aviator and a military man himself will be speaking now with a gentleman who certainly has the experience of flying one of the most amazing aircraft of all time, the amazing Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird. And before we introduce our special guest, United States Air Force Colonel retired Richard Graham, a short introduction to the book that we'll be speaking about is an order entitled Flying the SR-71 Blackbird in the Cockpit on a Secret Operational Mission. The SR-71 Blackbird covered the distance from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. in 64 minutes, cruised 16 miles above the Earth's surface, and avoided surface-to-air missiles by simply outrunning them. For anyone who has ever wondered what it was like to fly the SR-71 on a secret Mach 3 reconnaissance mission, Colonel Richard H. Graham retired as the answers. Now his classic detail of account and account of piloting the legendary Blackbird is redesigned and expanded with a new introduction and a selection of photos from his personal collection. A 15-year veteran of the SR-71 community, including time as a pilot and instructor, Graham is arguably the world's foremost expert on piloting the Blackbird. Here he walks readers through the mission details from planning to donning a pressure suit, bringing the SR-71 safely back to base. And with that, a proud guest here on the radio show who's appeared before. Colonel, welcome to the Dr. Sky Show. Thank you much, Steve. Uh, good to be back on there with you. Absolutely, sir. We go back just so the audience knows. We've known each other for quite a while. And, Colonel, I think the most amazing day as far as my learning about anything about the SR-71, I'm going back in our time tunnel. You had the opportunity, or I should say I was given the opportunity by you to meet you at Love Field and actually sit in something that many people probably never had experienced, that is an SR-71 simulator, and I thank you for that. But with this book, sir, I want to just talk about this. This is amazing. We could talk so much about the history of this particular aircraft. I, along with so many people, are just enamored by this and the great genius of the Skunk Works with Kelly Johnson and Ben Rich. But talk to us a little bit about your career so people can set the stage here with this interview and understand better. Your involvement with this aircraft came from a long-time experience while flying F-4 Phantoms in Vietnam and so forth. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, background starts actually with uh, my father. Uh, my uh, 
real father died when I was two years old. He was a merchant marine and died in the Long Island uh, Naval Hospital. My mother remarried two years later, and fortunately for me, she married a Corsair pilot through the Corsairs, and uh, I got older and older up to the teenage. Uh, he had his license already, so he taught my brother and I both how to fly it. Uh, I sold out at uh, 16 and uh, got my license right after that. And I've been flying ever since. Came in the Air Force. Uh, I was very lucky. I stayed on as an instructor, flying the T uh, 37 for three years, and then I got into the F-4s, and that got me over to Vietnam. I did the uh, one-year stint as an F-4 fighter pilot in Vietnam, and then I spent another six months back in Vietnam as a wild weasel pilot in the F-4, which wild weasel goes after the SAMs. And after that, I got into the SR program in 1974, flew it all the way to 1981. Uh, They wanted me to be the squadron commander, so I reluctantly accepted that because I knew my flying days were over. It's one of the few yes. flying units where the squadron commander does not fly the primary airplane. There's just there's just not enough hours to fly an SR-71 at the cost. And it came out of that. Uh, I went to the Pentagon for four years, and while I was in the Pentagon, I made colonel, and I came back to Beale Air Force Base as the uh, vice wing commander for a year, and then after mm-hmm. that year, I became the wing commander at Beale in with all the assets of the U-2s, the SR, KC-135s at Beale. So, Amazing story. Then I re- re- retired and came aboard American Airlines for 13 years, and uh, I now retired from that. It's a great story, and we're privileged and honored to have retired United States Force Colonel Richard Graham talking about something that he knows so well, one of America's most amazing stories about America's pipeline and so many other people involved in the mission. You and the RSO with Don Emmons, you're, uh, you're naturally called, I guess, your names, uh, flight names, either on the side of the airplane or just as they called you, Snake and Nape. Nape, tell us a little bit about how you guys got to be Snake and Nape. I, think <laughs> I don't know where you got that. I don't know how many people know that. That was our nickname. Uh, I was Snake and uh, he was Nape. And uh, it, it sort of evolved because that was my favorite ordinance. Uh, I should say the, my best ordinance. I like drawing yes. it. Dropping it over in Vietnam. It's, uh, you go like a bat out of hell, and you go as low and as fast as you can go, and uh, you pickle off napalm. Uh, nasty. Uh, it's not It's not made for the uh, sensitive people because it's, it's a very nasty instrument, but uh, I really like dropping it down in a tree low. Wow, powerful stuff. And we could talk forever about the wonders of the F-4, F-4, F-4 Phantoms forever. We collect yeah, right. a lot of military patches and such, but... How did uh, Don get his uh, name, his flying name, Nape? Uh, what's the story behind that? Well, it, it just sort of became Snake and Napalm. I, he was actually the, he, he inquired the, uh, the Snake part of it, and I was the Nape part of it. And uh, just because he does all the secretly stuff in the back and the SR, he controls all of the uh, high-resolution cameras, all the sensors, all the jammers. And so that's why he gets the snake, and I'm the nape. Wow, fascinating it, what, stuff. We 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 every crew that came in, we dubbed them with some kind of a front seater and back seater combination. Yes. Well, this is amazing, Colonel. I mean, going through this book, I want people to go ahead and look at getting this book again, entitled "Flying the SR-71 Blackbird in the Cockpit on a Secret Operational Mission." And though I'd love to be talking about the history of the airplane, I believe what this book's main context is is to talk about. 
how the aircraft, when you get in it, from the pressure suit side all the way to flying it, and you have so many amazing illustrations in here. And again, this is, you know, this is so amazing because all this is unclassified. I can only imagine what the classified stuff is because you basically give everybody from the most amazing person who loves video games. I'm sure they'd just like to jump into the cockpit. So start off, if you would, in our short interview today, sir, and just describe the process. I mean, you wake up at a certain time like astronauts do for their flights and pre-checks and things. Describe this to us. You're, you're told by higher command what the mission's about. Some of it, I'm sure, was very secret. But let's talk about the human side of this. You get up, you get showered, you get into your pressure suit. Talk all about the importance of this pressure suit, because this is an aircraft, right, Colonel, that's flying upwards of 65,000 feet. And I'm saying that for a reason, because you're the expert here. Once you get above that altitude, even if you have oxygen mask on, you're into a dangerous zone where the whole body, what, could be seemingly destroyed in a matter of seconds. Describe the pressure suit, the process of getting into it, and the necessity of making sure that everything from the ring locks on the gloves to the helmet visor is properly secured for pressurization. Yeah, the, the, the pressure suit is your survival. If, if you have to eject it, uh, anything above 70,000 feet, uh, you have to realize that just like water, it boils here at sea level at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the boiling water. As you go higher in altitude, the boiling pressure uh, the pressure of the altitude being less and less, the boiling point goes lower and lower. And the actual, our, bo- our body temperature of 98.6 mm-hmm. degrees Fahrenheit starts boiling at 73,000 feet. So wow. theoretically, anything above 73,000 feet, if you didn't have a pressure suit on, you, anything, your saliva, your, your blood, everything would start eventually boiling off. Wow. And that's why you wear the pressure suit. So that's the main role, to save your life more than anything. Uh, it's built by David Clark, uh, very good suit. It's been modified many, many times over the years and with a lot of more uh, safety uh, things put into it. Uh, I always, uh, mm-hmm. it takes about uh, 45 minutes but when you go down and suit up for the, in the SR, you go down and uh, get out of your plate suits and then put on your long john underwear and then, Slip your feet in, they zip it up the back, and you lay down, they put the helmet on, and then you lay in these big oversized chairs, and they go through every button, zipper, everything on the whole suit to make sure, sure. it is, has its integrity that or it'll save your life. And, uh, you know, you, you have a cooling vent uh, where you keep cooling air all the way out so you're, uh, until you hook onto the airplane's uh, air conditioning. And it keeps you cool the whole time. And uh, you go out in a van that has an oversized chair for mm-hmm. both you and the back seater, which is RSO, Reconnaissance Systems Officer. Sure. And the two go out to the airplane. You climb up, uh, get all the connections mated to the airplane, and away you go. That's amazing. And as we continue here on the Dr. Sky Show, privilege and honor, this is not the first time the colonel has been on with us, and certainly not the last as far as I'm concerned. We could talk forever. And so this audience, of course, is getting entertained and educated at the same time, Colonel. So I'm grateful for your time and your service to this great country. His book, Flying the SR-71 Blackbird in the Cockpit on a Secret Operational Mission, well over 200 pages, goes into amazing detail, ladies and gentlemen, not only about the instrumentation on board the co- in the cockpit, I should say, basically what, Colonel? Analog. I mean, we say the word again, analog. Uh, this is before the days of having what? Glass cockpit capability. Am I right? That's correct. 
That's correct. Totally amazing. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote that book. Uh, that was my third book I wrote on the SR. Just, uh, I wanted to take the reader uh, on a complete mission from start to finish. Man, we go through the entire checklist from the time we get in the cockpit until we come back and land. And uh, I think it does a justice of giving the reader a good feel of what it's like to fly the SR-71. And you're doing a great job, Colonel. You know, a little backstory on this, and it's kind of humorous to me. We're friends with uh, Colonel Frank Murray, one of the A-12 drivers. Yes. And I'm just reading something here from your book, and I quote here, the first flight by a Blackbird in A-12 occurred on April the 26th, 1962, flown by Lockheed test pilot Lou Schalk. It was a single-seat Blackbird flown by the CIA, civilian pilots under the development program called Project and Project Oxcart. They flew sorties, as you know, out of Okinawa, Japan, under the operational code name Black Shield. And they flew for a long time, from May 1967. The program was officially terminated in May of 68. They flew 29 sorties, 26 over North Vietnam and 3 over North Korea. Colonel, this was a funny story, and I'm sure I'll get a chuckle out of you. Colonel Murray, he's just a, you know, he, he's amazingly funny to me, and, and what an amazing veteran, too. But he said to me, you know, Steve, he said, we had the A-12, and that was a single-seater. And he said, we used to call that the sport model. And then I said to him, really? And I said, well, what, what did you call the SR-71? And he said, I called that the family wagon. And I thought that was, I thought that was cute, don't you think, Colonel? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. All, all of the A-12 guys that are still alive, they, they come to our reunion. We have a re- reunion of the SR program mm-hmm. yes. every two years, and they generally show up. Well, let's move on in the short time we have here. Now you're in your pressure suit. You're all checked out. You're in the, it's like astronauts, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you see them in the little van that goes out to the spacecraft. And in this case, this amazing otherworldly aircraft, the SR-71. So, Colonel, describe next. You're obviously getting the cockpit, the RSOs in seat. Tell us without revealing national security things here. I mean, what's what's the next thing? You go through your pre-flight checklist. What are some of the things that you have to do? And also including up to starting the uh, amazing J-58 engines. Once you get into the uh, cockpit, uh, you have to realize that there's always two crews primed for the mission. There's the primary crew and what we call the backup crew. Mm-hmm. The primary crew is going to be the flyers. And the backup crew, they study the day before like you do the entire mission because if you show up the next morning, you're sick or can't ha- hack it because uh, you have to take a physical before every flight in the airplane. If you don't pass the physical, then the backup crew is called in to take over. Everything being normal, while you're getting suited up, the backup crew will then leave operations and go out to the airplane and the hangar, and they go through the whole checklist, all the way right up to the start engine checklist, and they make sure everything's working. And then when we crawl in the airplane with the pressure suits on, we pick up the checklist at the start engines, and that's the first thing we do. That's amazing. Uh, it doesn't take too long. You're in the hangar for about 15 minutes, and you taxi out. Uh, the, the backup crew are in a car, they lead you out, they want to make sure there's nothing on the taxiways or runway that's going to blow a tire. Each of the main tires and the nose tire are 400 PSI gaseous nitrogen and very high pressure. And You run over a a nut or a bolt out there, it could actually cause you to have to abort the whole mission. Well, Colonel, now I go to the humor department here once again, and we celebrate. Ladies and gentlemen, this interview is being conducted here in the early portion of May 2021, and Colonel, as you know... America's first astronaut to be launched on a suborbital flight, May 5, 1961, was Alan Shepard. And the reason I'm mentioning that, talking about suits, I'm reading this, and I was like saying this on another national show, that here he is getting up at whatever ungodly hour, having steak and eggs for breakfast, getting into his suit, getting into the Redstone and Mercury capsule, the Redstone rocket, 
And you may know this, too. He's lying on his back. They were having a four-hour hold. And guess what, Colonel? His spacesuit had no contingency for when Mother Nature called. <laughs> so he had to urinate. And I'm saying this to a family-friendly audience. In the spacesuit, puddling and pooling up the urine in the back of his suit. Sorry to get too much information. But the concern was that he would have shorted out some of the sensors. And right. he said, after his flight, and I know you probably know this very well, but the audience may not, Hey, guys, this rocket was built by the lowest bidder. But going back to the serious side with our special guest, Colonel Richard Graham, SR-71 pilot extraordinaire, talk about the contingencies that were in your suits, because obviously you're in there for flights that how long a duration, and, and what were the contingencies built into the suit to prevent you from having the same Alan Shepard moment? Uh, we had what was called a UCD, and that stood okay. for your collection device. And okay. a UCD is nothing more than a... Uh, extra-large, thicker rubber condom, basically. And it's got right. Velcro It's got Velcro on one side. Mm -hmm. When you put on your long john underwear, which is what you use on, inside the uh, pressure suit, the long john underwear has a, a Velcro also. So you just sort of slip it on, if you will, make sure it's mated, and then it goes to a hose. And on your knee, you have a little valve. I, I just unzip a little zipper on my knee, and I mm -hmm. open up the, the valve, and now it's got a free flow from where it's going to collect it all the way down into my uh, pocket, and mm -hmm. my left leg, there's a sponge down there to absorb it all up, so it's not going to slosh around. So. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's all taken care of, so, but yeah. just, just that, there's nothing else taken care of, though, and we've had so many <laughs> others, too. Well, we've come a long way, right, Colonel, <laughs> since we've <Yep>. discovered <laughs> first astronauts in space and how to use what you need to do when Mother Nature calls. But on a very serious note, now the aircraft is given clearance for going down the runway, taking off. I know this, you have a point of contention with this because I read these books front and back. And you're describing here how you find so many people in the media world, and maybe some airline pilots or people who are in the know, they talk about that the SR-71 had to take off with not even a full payload of fuel. And you have a different view of this because that's not always the case. Am I right? No, the, the the reason we we just there was only one mission we flew and it flew it out of Okinawa. We call it the rocket ride. It's the only mm -hmm. mission where we really took off with a full load of gas. It's it's eighty thousand pounds of gas. The wow. airplane weighs sixty empty, so you've got a hundred forty thousand pound airplane uh, with a very uh, high speeds going down a runway. And with a heavy load, it's just not worth it. Uh, we've had, back in the early days before I got into it, we, they had some problems at Beale where mm -hmm. they had a, an airplane where the, the tires blew and it became a ball of fire. The crew got out okay, but the airplane was a write-off. Yes. So because of that, we take off with a partial load of fuel, generally around you know 45,000 pounds of gas. Yes. It holds 80,000. So you're going to hit a tanker right after takeoff. Wherever you go, anywhere in the globe, you'll take off with a partial load, and then you'll get a refuel right after, not right after, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes to get to the tankers. And then you take on a full load of gas, and now the airplane has a maximum amount of gas, 80,000 pounds, and that'll make you go through the entire the flight that you're going to be on. That's incredible. Describe this rocket ride, because many people out there that are, you know, in their own pilot license uh, routine and people who want to go out get a pilot's license, you're talking about the fastest aircraft ever that we know about. I mean, to get altitude, if you had to get up to that altitude, and I'm assuming you're talking about plus 65,000 feet, 
What's that ride like? I mean, from the human side, it must uh, be just outrageous. Yeah, once you come off the tanker, you light the afterburners. We do a little what we call a dipsy doodle where you climb up subsonic and then push the nose down. And mm. You want to go through the sound barrier on your way down. It's the most economical way to save fuel to go through it real fast because there's a big drag area wow. right on the. So we do this yeah. dipsy doodle. And then once you get the Mach 1, we start going up and we just climb at 450 knots. Uh, it's, I'm going to say a number here. It's called Keys. Nazi equivalent airspeed. We don't use airspeed or miles per hour. We mm-hmm. use Nazi equivalent airspeed. Yes. And we just hold a 450 knots all the way up, and once you get to 70,000 feet, you'll be leveling off, and uh, you be guaranteed you'll be at Mach 3 at that time. It's just a slow, gradual increase of Mach as you go up at the same time. Is there, any, sen- right. Is there any sensation of being at, I mean, if you're pushing no. Mach 3 plus no. Mach 3.1, nothing? You don't feel this in any no. way, shape, or form? No, it's, wow. a, it's a nice, slow, gradual climb, and as you climb, you're accelerating at the same time, and you'll you'll off at 70,000 feet, basically. Uh, everyone, because you come off the tanker with the same amount of fuel, and you're going to live off about 70,000, 71,500 maybe, and you'll be at Mach 3, and then from then on, while you're supersonic, we always keep the airplane in about a 300-foot-per-minute rate of climb all the time. Wow. Whereas with most airliners, like when I flew for American, you have to be at a hard altitude. But sure. we've got to remember, once you get above 60,000 feet, anywhere on this globe, we own the entire airspace. So you That's amazing. So we just, we just have a climb. If the airlines could do that, they would actually have some kind of infinitesimal, like maybe 10 or 20 feet per minute rate of climb as well. Interesting. So from your knowledge, sir, for the latest in corporate jets, I understand a lot of the corporate aircraft can fly, what, up into the high, maybe low 50s, am I correct in this? They're, they never reach yeah, the they're, altitude. They're, you're you're exactly right. They're starting to get up into the 50s, the low 50s. Uh, totally amazing. Yeah, you know, right. folks, this is an amazing time to celebrate not only this gentleman's service to our country, but all veterans. But we're having a special conversation here, and there are always conversations. Colonel Richard H. Graham, United States Air Force, retired. He's the author of many books on this particular amazing aircraft, the Kelly Johnson and Ben Ritz story, which would take up hours, and certainly, hopefully, someday we could do that, if it's okay with you, Colonel, just talk more about history. Fine. But this book talks about this, and here's the title, Flying the SR-71 Blackbird in the Cockpit in a Secret Operational Mission. So now let's talk about something that I'm so fascinated about, and I hardly know, obviously, as much as you do on this, and the listeners are excited to hear that the J-58 engine. I think from what Ben Rich did, the father of what I call the inlet technology, this is a ram-type engine. I'm, I'm, I'm using basic terms here. So at Mach 3.2, I'm just reading this, the J-58 engine, I think, produces, as it says here, 20% thrust, but the inlet produces 80% thrust, and this is amazing. So in the simplest terms for us out there that just think about jet engines as being jet engines, this is a different one, the J-58. And, and the, the engine... I'm going to give you a real simple analogy. I, I okay. talk to a lot of audiences, and I, sure. they always wonder, how, how's, how's that engine at 34,000 pounds of thrust for each engine for a total of 68,000 pounds of thrust? Those must be tremendous jets. Well, it's not the jet. It's the way it turns. It uses the spike. If you look at the SR-71 inlet, it's got two spikes out in front. Mm-hmm. Those spikes are on a retractable schedule. They're locked forward. And they unlock it, passing through one point, uh, I want to say four mock. They start unlock and they start moving back ever so slowly into the inlet. And what they're doing is capturing that shock wave right at the pinpoint of that, that mm-hmm. spike. And they're bringing it 
shockwave into the inlet, which any airplane you ever flown, F-4, T-38, anything that can go supersonic, mm-hmm. you do not want the shockwave to come into your engine. It'll flame you out in a heartbeat. Wow. So this spike, it controls the shockwave so it doesn't get through the first stage compressors of the engine. And that's where we get the ram effect. Uh, what I tell all audiences in a very mm-hmm. simplistic manner, here is what's happening. If I gave you a garden hose right here on the ground, mm-hmm. and it had no, no spout on the end of it, just an open garden hose, and I turned it on full speed, sure. and I told you to put your hand over the nozzle of it, it would then go from about two feet in front of you, and I can squeeze it, and it'll go about 30, 40 feet out in front of me with a lot more velocity. Wow. That is exactly what's happening inside that inlet. It's amazing because very, I'm looking at... A, you know, it's a very simplistic, simple, but that's water. Is the same thing as air. They're both mediums. So I guess in summation, it'd be something like this. At Mach, say, 3.2, air enters the inlet, slowing down the, the process or the engine thing to 0.6 Mach, I'm reading, which equals pressure and temperature, and that produces energy, and the ram recovery turns it into thrust. So thrust. that's where you're getting your extra effort to move the engine and move the aircraft, I should say, that's through uh, time yeah. and space. So oh. that whole... Yeah, that whole story, the J-58, I mean, that's real genius to me, don't you think? I mean, it creates it's, Well, it's a genius in a lot of things. They built that. Uh, it's Pratt & Whitney, and uh, it, it's got a unique ignition system. As you know, probably most jet engines, any jet engine I've ever flown in my life, you ignite them with igniter plugs, nothing more than a hot spark plug like we have in our cars. Yes. And most jet engines have two of them for redundancy in each engine. Mm. Well, they tried it with our fuel, which has a very high flash point, and it just drowned it out. So Kelly Johnson, who was the president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, he put his engineers together and said, how are we going to light this fuel off? And they came up with a very unique system. Wow. It's a liquid chemical called triethylborane, oh, yeah. T-E-B. We mm-hmm. called it TEB for short. Mm-hmm. And TEB, if I had it in my hand right now in my house in a sealed squirt gun, mm-hmm. and I squirted out of the gun right here in my mm-hmm. house, it goes kaboom when it hits the atmosphere. And oh, wow. that was our ignition system. So a liquid chemical ignition system. Wow. Not something you want to go to a Circle K and get a, a big gulp and put that in there, of course. I mean, that's uh, highly explosive to, uh, as you say, but it helps turn those. Why? Because the turbines are so stiff to get to turn. I guess you got to get something to fire it up. That's what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, the, 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 oil, the oil on it, when they fill it up with oil... They have to preheat the cans so it'll pour into, into, the, into the engine. Wow. And it's very, very thick, and it just couldn't turn it with a, a volume of air. So they use Buicks. We have Buick mm-hmm. starting carts, two Buick Wildcat engines, which put out 1,060 horsepower in tandem. And they go to a driving shaft, and that's a mechanical shaft that's connected right to the bottom of the airplane, the J-58 engine. So you have a mechanical shaft rather than air like airliners do and every other jet. And then on your secret operational missions, which obviously many of that bits of information I'm sure are classified, they have something called those ASARs. And these are what? These are sensing pods that can do everything, obviously optical imagery and then some other things. That's the purpose of the secret mission, obviously, to find things. That's it. Those are the sensors, the ASARs, and that's... uh, uh, it was a radar imaging system, was ASARS. We can actually get a picture down to about 12-inch resolution by 80,000 feet, Mach 3 speeds. We could get real good uh, clarity out of it with radar. So it, it was what our, we called our all-weather 
uh, camera, if you will. Totally amazing. And we had, then we had two other cameras on the airplane that were even down to three-inch resolution, which are actually photographed kind of images rather than radar. You know, folks, if you're wondering how fast this aircraft could fly from point A to point B, you know this because you lived it. But the records, and I'm just looking at this, and I'm quoting this right from your book here. New York to London, one hour and 54 minutes. But the most incredible one, I think, is the Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., 64 minutes and 20 seconds. Yes, folks, I'm going to repeat that, 64 minutes and 20 seconds. Right, Colonel, beats any of your commercial airliners and puts it to shame. And the most SR-71 flying time, and by the way, through your courtesy, I was able and grateful to get in touch with the man who has the most SR-71 flying time, Lieutenant Colonel J.T. Vita, with 1,492.7 hours. He was an interesting interview, too, and I, and I want to thank you for everything that you've done, sir, to long learn and teach us about this most amazing aircraft. I just, like I said, I hope we can do this again, talk a little bit more about the history. But give me your, from the human side, I want to ask this as I always do our guests, what do you want people to get out of this book? And then give us a little bit of information on why this program was so important, what, what the United States gained from the SR-71 program. Well, the book that you're talking about, that, that's one of the five I've written. But uh, that one I wanted, to, I found out there was an audience out there who wanted to know all the details and facts. So it's, mm -hmm. it's actually the, the flight manual in my version. I, mean, I sort of make it, I dumb it down a little bit so it's not as technical as a flight manual. Yes. And so it takes you on a complete mission from start to finish. Uh, there's an audience out there who wants to know all those little details. That's the book. Well, that's the book to get, ladies and gentlemen. That concludes this exciting interview. As we continue here, well over 15 years on the Dr. Sky Show, heard locally, nationally, and around the world through this format, too, our special guest, Colonel Richard H. Graham, United States Air Force, retired. Once again, a book, ladies and gentlemen, if you're even the slightest bit interested in aviation, you're an existing pilot or also a military veteran of any of the armed forces, or simply just someone who wants to learn about something totally amazing, the book is entitled Flying the SR-71 Blackbird in the Cockpit on a Secret Operational Mission. Colonel, thank you, and please stay on the line as we go to the hard break at the bottom of the hour. That concludes this edition of the Dr. Sky Show. With the help of our producer extraordinaire, Dr. D, he's the audio physician himself. He does everything on the back end as I try to do my time and my part on the front end. His radio station, KZSB AM 1290 in Santa Barbara, California. Dr. Sky simply reminds everyone what, Colonel? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. As every day, I'm trying to earn the opportunity to be what? Your navigator on the highway to the heavens. And thank you, Colonel, for being our navigator on the SR-71 Blackbird. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Steve.